Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. All right. Um, Well, let's jump in. Um, We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 today. And as you're kind of turning there, let me, uh, I want to tell you a story. You may have heard this story uh, several years ago, but there's a California man. Uh, Seems like it always starts in California. Uh, named Larry Walters, sorry, Chris Clark, uh, some of you guys out there, I know, that's kind of tacky. And last, I don't know what's going on, I think I'm honoring the end of the year, last week I was picking on uh, fly fishermen, and I was like, I actually would like to fly fish, y'all don't ever feel bad about putting your, your pictures of your fish up there, because it's kind of cool, y'all should keep doing it, I'm not trying to run you down. If you're from California, you're welcome here, we love you, we're grateful you're here. Um, I love going to California, I don't know what that has to do with anything, let's focus. Um, it's been a busy week, we'll see how interesting this gets today. Uh, but Larry Walters, uh, a few years back, uh, was feeling a little bit bored, so he went to an army surplus store and bought 75 used water or weather balloons. Uh, whatever happens in the store, you know it's going to be good from that point on, right? Because any dude with 75 used weather balloons is going to do something fun. But maybe you remember this story, but he, he went and he inflated the balloons, he tied them to a lawn chair and secured it to the back of his pickup truck, and then he had a friend untie it. And in the midst of that, he, uh, his friend later said um, he was hoping to observe the neighborhood from a slightly different angle and gain a new perspective on life. So Larry had packed a PB&J sandwich and took a six-pack of beer and a BB gun and got headed up into space with these 75 weather balloons. The problem was when his friend untied the rope that had secured him to the back of his pickup, uh, according to reports, uh, he shot up like a rocket so fast that he did the only thing he could think of, which was quickly drink the entire six-pack. It says as he passed 2,000 feet, or as he got to about 2,000 feet, he passed out in the lawn chair. Two and a half hours later, Los Angeles International Airport reported an unidentified flying object at 16,000 feet. Lawn chair Larry, as it became known later, was now three miles high, 100 miles from home. A 737 pilot reported and said, well, I see what looks like a perfectly still man, is it, in a lawn chair? And I think he's holding a rifle. Um, Wouldn't you like to be the air traffic controller that got that report in on the radio? That'd be a a day you could ride home about at work. Um, He eventually descended and and figured out he better start popping balloons and began to descend, got stuck in some power lines. Uh, The LA SWAT team had to go and help him out. Uh, Later, when he was facing a $4,000 fine, he was asked why he did it, and he said, I just kind of got tired of sitting around. (laughs) Seems like a legitimate reason, right? Uh, Why do I tell that story? I tell that story because I find a lot of people in churches feel that way too. A lot of people in churches go, I'm just kind of tired of sitting around. Like I come and the show's not that good. I don't know what it is that we're trying to do here. And if there's not something that's, that's more engaging than just a, a little bit of a talk and singing a few songs, then I don't know that I really want to invest my whole life here. I don't know that I want to really dive in, all in, 
to this place. And so somehow I think we just have this sense that we ought to be a part of something bigger. And see, here's the great thing. Last week we talked about Jesus coming to his disciples and he said to them, follow, come, follow me. And they began this adventure. And what you see is their adventure was a little bit like Larry's. They thought maybe, maybe we'll follow Jesus and we'll go up and get a little better perspective on some things in our lives. And all of a sudden, man, they shot off into space on an adventure by God's grace that they could never imagine. Like they, they just took off and this thing began to take on a bigger life. And what we began to see is that they knew that, they, that somehow life was going to be bigger. But like Larry, they wanted a new perspective and they ended up getting a whole new life. Not just a little bit of an adjustment, but just a holistic change of everything. And friends, that's what I want to encourage you with as we kind of head into this year. Sometimes it's easy to come to church. It's like, man, I, I show up a couple times a month. I drop a little bit of leftovers in the bucket. I maybe serve here and there. I, I lean in and try to take a couple you know, ideas away from the thing that I'm doing. But, but maybe I'm not really all in. And maybe, maybe this is about something more than just attending occasionally. Maybe it's about something God wants to do at a deeper level in us. And the good news for you and for me is that the mission of Je- that Jesus is calling us to is far bigger than just attendance at a service. He wants more of your life. He wants to give you more joy than that. So this is week two of our series, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9. And as we do, we're just talking about the kind of lives we want to cultivate this year. And last week I left you uh, with that question of, are you ready to follow Jesus this year? Uh, the, we all need to hear Jesus call like the disciples did that says, follow me. And our devotion to Jesus is the right starting place for a deep, meaningful life. But what we, what we see today is that the, the starting place of being devoted or trusting Jesus doesn't stop there. It needs to be developed. We need to grow. We need to move into a deeper relationship with Christ. And so today I want us to talk about our spiritual growth, our development as disciples. We need both devotion and development. See, that um, devotion without development is shallow. See, if you've got a heart that goes, sure, I'll follow you, but you don't ever grow, or don't ever change anything, don't ever do anything, it just keeps your faith at a shallow surface level. Yeah, there's a little bit of emotion with it, but there's not really any depth to it. It stays at a shallow level. Now, the opposite is true too. Development without devotion is meaningless. That if you say, well, I'm gonna work really hard and try really hard and do lots of stuff, but my heart isn't really in it and I don't really care about Christ and I'm not really trying to follow him, then it's going to be meaningless. But when you put devotion and development together, it adds depth and meaning to our lives. And that's what Christ is inviting us into. So as we think about life in 2024, the question I want you to ask today is, are you willing to seek a deep, meaningful development and growth as a follower of Jesus this year? So turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Let me tell you where we're going to go. Uh, First, I want us to zoom in on one specific example of how Jesus was developing his disciples, how he came along his disciples and helped them to grow up and and mature in the faith. And so we're going to zoom in on one of those, and we're going to step back and go, what was Jesus doing kind of as you go through the long scope of their lives over this three-year period? And then I want us to to turn and talk about how you and I can develop our walk walk with Jesus in the next year. Sound good? All right, well, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 10 through verse 17. It says, On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And while the crowds learned it, or when the crowds learned of it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had a need of healing. 
Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside so that they can find lodging and get provisions of food. For here is a desolate, we are in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We don't have more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we were to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups, about 50 each. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up at heaven and said a blessing over them. And he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 whole baskets of broken pieces. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Y'all grab a seat and we're going to dive in here. It's interesting when you look at this story, kind of how it starts. This is a a famous miracle that we see in in all four Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this miracle shows up and it's unpacked. And in all four of those who are given testimony to what Jesus did, it's one that gets highlighted over and over again. And it starts off with an interesting kind of comment. In verse 10, you notice what it says. It says, on their return, they recounted to Jesus all they had done. So they've been away on a journey, they've done some stuff, and they were coming back and they began to tell Jesus about it. What is that pointing back to? It actually points back a little bit earlier in chapter 9. In fact, in uh, this entire section of of Luke unfolds really how Jesus is developing his disciples. And the whole point is their their growth in, in their discipleship, they were beginning to understand what Jesus wanted them to do. Now, what's interesting in the way in which Jesus does it is you begin to see his strategy unpacked here. Uh, Students, you ever go to class and you have like a lecture and then you have a lab? And you go to a lecture and it says, this is the thing you need to know and what you need to understand. Then you go to lab and it says, okay, now try to practice it and do the things that I just taught you about. And so you've got kind of this intellectual side and then you've got this experiential side that you need to do. That's the approach Jesus is taking. He's gonna instruct them and teach them and then he's going to kind of send them out and say, okay, now you go do it. You go do the things I, I told you to do. And he's going to, going to show them how to do it and then give them assignments where they have to actually go do that for their, themselves. And that's what's happening is they're, is they're being sent out and learning to do the things that he's teaching them to do. They're having to internalize the message at a deeper level and, and actually begin to trust him and allow him to work through them. Look at verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 1. It says, and he called the 12 together. So this is just a little bit earlier. This is what they, they, were, they had gone out to do and they came back and began to tell Jesus about. He called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all demons and cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And so Jesus takes these 12, his disciples, the ones that we looked at last week when he said, you come and follow me. And now he takes those 12 and he says, I'm gonna teach you to do the things that, I, that, that I'm doing. I'm proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. And because the kingdom of God is here, that we're going we're gonna to help people live like they would in the kingdom. That eventually, what my world is going to be like when I recreate the world, there's going to be no more pain. There's going to be no more sorrow. There's going to be no more, uh, no more sin. And so we're going to begin to give them a taste of that even now. And I want to help you see that. Now, there's a lot that could be said here. The short of it is, they were being sent out to do the stuff Jesus had been doing. Up to this point in Jesus' life, Jesus had come. In fact, the very first thing Jesus came to do, he says, I'm coming to bring, uh, to bring you the good news that the kingdom of God is here. He's a representative to tell people that God has not forgotten about you, but he cares about you. He's here. And in Jesus' arrival on earth as a redeemer, he was sent to save us from our sins. 
God poured out miracles in that time to testify and point to all the goodness of his kingdom. Now, beyond just the, the obvious thing of if you were a blind person at that time, this was an amazing miracle that, that served you well and cared well for you. Uh, these miracles did two purpo- fulfilled two purposes as well. They testified to God's power that was at work through Jesus and just said, because Jesus is the one that God has sent, he could do amazing things. He's the one who represents God. It also testifies to the nearness of the kingdom and the kind of king that Jesus would one day be. It says he's a king that you can trust. He's a king who is good. And in his kingdom, it'll be a place where goodness reigns over evil and over suffering. And so Jesus was giving them a glimpse of what one day the world would be like whenever he ruled in in fullness. All of that was meant to kind of be like LED lights just flashing down and saying, Jesus is truly the rescuer, the Messiah, the one that was sent by God to bring good news to the world. Now what's shocking about the beginning of chapter 9 is not that, because Jesus has already told us that he's already been living that out up to this point. What's shocking about chapter 9 is that Jesus goes, now why don't you, you guys go do it? Why don't you fishermen go out and do those things too? Why don't you go proclaim the kingdom? Why don't you tax collector go proclaim the kingdom? And he begins to share his power and his authority and his message with these 12 men. Now, let's step back just a minute. Because what we see in verse 6, it says, they departed, they went out through villages, and they were preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. But do you, do you see the strategic move that Jesus has made? When you think about it from a leadership perspective, what has Jesus just done? He's taken what it was that he as one individual did, and he multiplied that, and now he's got 12 people out doing the same kind of stuff in the world. He's multiplied his mission by 12. And so this, but, but if we think about the kind of people that these, that these men are, this feels like kind of a surprising move, doesn't it? I love what a guy named Robert Coleman says about entrusting Jesus' mission to these men. He says, by any standard of sophisticated culture, then or now, they would be considered a rather ragged aggregation of souls. One might wonder how Jesus could ever use them. They were impulsive, temperamental, easily offended, and they had all the prejudices of their own environment. In short, these men selected by the Lord to be his assistants represented an average cross-section of the lot of society in their day. Not the kind of men one would expect to change the world. Do you see that to be true? When you think about what you know about Peter, just, just take Peter. Like half the time, Peter's the guy that later Jesus is like, get thee behind me, Satan, to Peter. Because every time Peter tries to do, Peter's like, you know, just he's always like storming off and he chops the dude's ear off in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane later. And Jesus is like, dude, not that. Puts the ear back on. And there's all these things that are happening. Peter's always like, let's do this. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the right way. And, and it, does that give you hope? It does me because we oftentimes look a lot like these guys. We oftentimes look like people that, man, we're trying really hard, but we trip and stumble and we make mistakes and we do all the right things. But here's the thing. This is God's plan A and God never needs a plan B. So what's going to happen is Jesus is going to develop these men. He's going to prepare them. He's going to grow them. And he's going to show them exactly how it is they need to live. Now, they've just gone out on their first mission trip, right? Jesus gathered them. He sends them out on their first mission trip. They come back and now they're recounting to Jesus. And they go, Jesus, check out what we did. I met this guy and I was able to heal him. And I preached the message and these people responded and they're telling him about all the good stuff that they did. And in the midst of that, they, they needed to pull away for a bit. And so it makes sense. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you come back tired. Like you go and you pour yourself out and you pour yourself out and you come back tired. That's where they were at this point. And so verse 11, it says, 
Clear verse 10 says they were trying to withdraw to a place out in the wilderness. But look what happens in verse 11. It says, when the crowds learned of it, they followed them. And Jesus went ahead and welcomed them. And he spoke to them the kingdom of God and cared for those who needed healing. It's interesting. They try to get away. They're like, dude, I'm done. Need some rest. Going to go to. But the crowd hears about it. They're still interested. They're seeking Jesus. They follow after him. They go to hear what they can from Jesus. And what's Jesus do? It says he welcomes them. That he had compassion on them and he welcomed them. And what is it that Jesus does? He does exactly what he originally had sent them out to do, right? That he preached the good news and he cared for their needs and met them where they were. It's interesting. Do you ever learn that way? Where sometimes you've heard a message, you've heard what it is you're supposed to do, and then you have to actually go and do it, and you realize how hard it is and how exhausting it is. And then when you go back and you hear the master teacher telling you what it is, you, you lean in and listen a little, little more closely because you realize, oh, I actually want to know this message. I, I need to know the stuff he's, he's doing. And so there, Jesus is saying, I know you sent out and you did some good things. Let me show you again how this is to be done. And so in verse 11, Jesus is modeling for them what he's asking them to develop in their own lives. That's usually how we learn best. And so Jesus is, gonna, is about to provide for them some even deeper instruction. He's going to take this as a teachable moment for his disciples and, and kind of lean in and give them an object lesson or a living parable about how to live this out. In verse 12, look what happens. It says that the day is starting to wear away. I mean, the sun's starting to drop. It's starting to get a little late in the day. They're starting to get a little grumble in their stomach, starting to get a little hungry. They're looking around at all these people. And they kind of look at Jesus and go, Jesus, you need to send these people home. Like, they're going to be hungry. They don't have a place to sleep. We need to send them home so they can get some, they can get some nourishment. And here's the thing. The disciples, as they get nervous and as they're tired, and they know that they're out in the middle of the wilderness, there's no, there's no Chick-fil-A here. There's no hotel here. There's no drive-through for them to, to send all these people to just swing through. They're like, we need, a, we need a plan. Now, if you're a leader in this organization, that's actually a pretty appropriate response, isn't it? It means that they, they were feeling the weight of the crowd, that they were feeling what was going on. They were going, we need to do something about this situation. And they were sensitive to the needs of the people. That's a really good response or, or a really reasonable response. These people are going to need something to eat, Jesus. We need to kind of wrap this thing up. Let's, let's shut her down. What's Jesus say to, him, say to them? You go feed them. Now, I just, I would love to see that. I, would, I, would, I wish we had video of the disciples' faces at that moment where the 12 are there and they're like, Jesus, wrap this thing up. And he goes, hey, I got a better idea. Why don't you go feed them? And they're like, like dude, we've got five little loaves of bread. We've got two little fishy that are getting a little stinky because it's late in the day. And there's 5,000 people here. What exactly do you want us to do? And, and so they're beginning to, to, to question kind of Jesus, maybe Jesus' sanity, what it is Jesus really wants them to do. From their perspective, they could not recognize any way this was going to get met. So they, in their mind, said, well, okay, there's two options we perceive. Either we could just send everyone home, or like Jesus, if you don't like that idea, we can all run home and get some food and bring it all back. And in fact, one of the other gospels says that one of the disciples proposed that and said, so if you, don't wanna, if, if you don't wanna send them home, do you want us to go get some food and try to bring it back here? But you need to know that's gonna cost 200 denarii, which is about seven months wages for an average worker. So, like, so you want us to take like, all of our money, go home and try to pick up takeout and bring it, bring it in for all these people. Like, gee, we can try that, but are you sure that's what you wanna do? Um, but Jesus, it's interesting, has a, has a better idea. 
And the point the writer makes here is that it's really difficult for the disciples to have the same perspective that Jesus has in the moment, doesn't it? See, the way that Jesus is looking at it, the angle that he's able to look at this scenario, he sees it from a certain perspective and he sees all kinds of opportunities, but they see things from just their perspective and they don't know how to fix this problem. But there was another option that they didn't consider, isn't there? They could have asked Jesus to provide the food. But it never dawned on them to ask Jesus to provide the food. Interestingly enough, there's actually Old Testament precedents for this kind of thing. And in, in the Old Testament, the prophet Elisha uh, fed 100 people one time with 20 little loaves of bread. And there were actually leftovers for that, for that meal. So if there was a, a prophet named Elisha that was able to do this kind of thing, surely Jesus could have done this thing. We also see that Moses in, in Exodus, uh, the, 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 when they were wandering in the wilderness, that the disciple or that the, the the Israelites actually received manna that fell from heaven, so bread fell from heaven and nourished the people. So these guys would have known that God's done this kind of thing in the past. God God's done this can provide in this sort of way. And if Jesus is really the Son of God sent to save the world, He's going to be able to do more than Elisha did. He's going to be able to do more than Moses did. But it never crossed their mind to to look to Jesus and say, "Okay, Jesus, we'll feed them. Just you provide the food." And we'll, we'll execute this plan. It never crossed their mind. In their own recent experience, they had just been sent out and they had actually performed miracles. They'd actually, it said, healed those that had been sick in the name of Christ in that time. And yet, even though they had experienced these things, it never even dawned on them in this moment to ask, to ask Jesus for help. Uh, friends, are you sometimes like that? Like you trust God in, in one level and you... Uh, you kind of live it out in one arena of your life, but then you get to another arena and it never even crosses your mind that God would care about this or God would, interfe- would, would intervene or, or, or have something to say about this. And so we, we sort of sometimes pick and choose. And I think that's what the disciples did. They were like, well, Jesus said do this. So they stepped out and they went and did the thing he did. But they hadn't internalized that Jesus was really God's, uh, God's servant who was come and had the power and the authority to do these things in and of himself. So they didn't ever turn to him and just ask for help. They continue to try to do things on their own. Verses four to, uh, four and, uh, 14, 15 says there are about 5,000 men. So Jesus said to them, sit down in groups, have them sit down in groups about 50 each. And they did so. And they began to sit down. And they're gonna, Jesus begins to organize them. We don't really know any strategic or any important reason why this is other than it probably just helped them count and helped them distribute the things that were there. And so this is probably just a purely practical thing uh, but Jesus is going to help them internalize their faith at a deeper level by having them actually do this work. In verse 16, it says, In taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Some actually see in this moment a foreshadowing of the Last Supper, uh, kind of a Eucharistic moment, that, uh, that Jesus is going to take the bread. And In fact, these five verbs that are used in this passage are the same ones that are used Later, when we see the Lord's Supper, the large table uh, that's executed, where it says he took the bread and he looked up and he blessed it or he gave thanks and he broke it and then he distributed it or gave it out. And so it's the same kind of a meal. Later, Jesus is going to call himself the bread of life. And all of this takes on meaning for us. But it had a unique meaning for these disciples in this moment because Jesus included them in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus took the bread and he took the loaves and he blessed them and he multiplied them But who was it that actually fed the people? It was the disciples. So back in verse 13, remember what Jesus told them to do? You go feed them. 
They're like, we don't have any bread. And he's like, we have a little bit of bread right there. And so he multiplies that bread and he still asks them to go do the work of feeding them. What's the lesson that he's trying to teach them? It's a lesson about God's provision. That, that they're meant to serve others, but they can only do it through the Lord's provision. That they can't, they, they don't have what it is in and of themselves to do this work, but they can rely on his power and his provision to do it. And so Jesus is focusing on his disciples' development. That they can serve others, but only through dependence upon him. That they were inadequate, but through him all things were possible. Verse 17, what's the result? It says, all the people ate and were satisfied, and there was left over amongst them 12 baskets of broken pieces. They, this, this whole thing ends up in great joy in celebrating God's provision. Uh, it's the pattern you see throughout the scriptures over and over. It's interesting, some people think that there's even an additional lesson for the disciples in the fact that there's 12 baskets left over. So like when it's all said and done, that there's 12 baskets, one for each disciple, and Jesus is like, look, I can give enough bread to feed all those people and you can each take an extra basket home. Like that's how, that's how powerful and strong I am. Why didn't you ask? Why didn't you turn and ask for my provision? Why didn't you look to me for help? Friends, do you see why this is an important lesson for the disciples to grasp? If they were going to carry out Jesus' mission, if Jesus was going to die and eventually go ascend to heaven and sit at the right hand of the Father, and they were going to be left behind, they were going to be the ones that had to carry this mission out. They had to learn that they could trust him with all things, that Jesus is one who will meet their needs, and that they can serve as his ministers in taking his provision and ministering to others. They just can't do it on their own. And that's a lesson we all need. And one guy said that what we see in this is that they are a lot like us, that over and over their instinctive reactions will mislead them. And Jesus had to reorient or change their perspective so they began to see things a little different way. That if you just see things in, from the way, from what you can accomplish and what you can do on your own, you're going to end up in trouble. You're not going to end up, you know, fulfill the mission. And so Jesus was preparing them for the mission that was going to be theirs when he was gone. See how he's multiplying the mission. It's interesting. Chapter 9 begins with him taking his mission and giving it to the 12. Do you know chapter 10 begins with Jesus taking his mission and he gives it to 72. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 1. It says, um, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of, ahead of him, two by two, into every town and every place where he himself was about to go. his harvest. Isn't that interesting that Jesus says, I, I took this message, I gave it to 12, but that, it multiplied it then. And then in chapter 10, he multiplies it to 72. And then he tells those 72, hey, pray for even more people to come be a part of the work that I have here in front of you. He's multiplying his mission. And he says, you should even pray for more co-laborers. Pray for more people. We want this thing to expand. And this is what we see. In fact, by the time you get to the book of Acts, or by the time you get to the end of Jesus' life, what we see is he had about 500 followers. It's interesting when you think about the most remarkable human being in all of history. What he had at the end of his life was about 500 faithful, committed followers who called themselves his disciples who were all in on what it is he had to do. But then by the book of Acts, what happens? First day, Peter preaches, 3,000 come. You see this thing begin to explode and it multiplies in exploding numbers throughout the entire world and it changes all of human history through this group of people. But do you see Jesus' strategy? 
It didn't start with him just ascending, building a big stage, and saying, hey, everyone, come listen to me. It started with him developing people, multiplying laborers, multiplying those who are disciples of his, saying, come, follow me, and I'm going to show you what it looks like to live like me, and I'm going to show you how it is you can invest in the same mission that I've got. And he begins to multiply his efforts through multiplication of others. Friends, this is why deep development is important for our discipleship. You see, there's a crowd in the passage we looked at last week, and out of that crowd, Jesus looked at a few and said, come follow me. It's interesting that in this passage, too, that when they come, there's a crowd, and they're curious about what Jesus has to say, but Jesus pours his his efforts into a few and develops them. A crowd who's interested is not the same as a community that's invested. A crowd who's curious is not the same as a community that's contending for his mission, that he's calling people to develop a deeper discipleship by faith and learning to walk in his ways. And here's why. What Jesus knew is that the adventure of his grace was far greater than just a a little bit of a taste of the kingdom. He wanted them to invest all of their lives in it. He, He said, this is where your most meaningful life will be found. This is where your greatest joy will be found. And so he's calling them to deeper and deeper places of trusting him. And I think he wants to do the same for us. So let's talk about you and me. If that's kind of the big picture, we saw how Jesus worked in that one instance. We stepped back and looked at Jesus' plan that it was to take these 12 and pour into them and said, follow me, but then develop them and help them grow up and mature and then multiply that to 72 and then multiply that in the book of Acts. He actually sends a spirit and says, now my presence is with everyone in the church and he's going to send them out into the world and says that you're to go to the ends of the earth with this message that I have proclaiming the goodness of God. And so what about you and me? We're actually invited to trust Jesus in the same kind of way. He invites us to receive new life by his grace and and then to learn to walk in that new life. And so he begins new life in us, but then he doesn't just leave us there. He grows us day by day, year by year, and we're called to develop in our discipleship of him. So can I just give you some practical ways that, that you can develop this year? As you think about how do, how do I want to live this out? What, is, what are some next steps for me? If I, like last week you go, Jeff, you said, are you wanting, do you want to follow Jesus in this year? And I said, I'm all in. Like, I want to follow Jesus. Then let's talk about the next step. Like, how do we develop as followers of Christ this year? Well, the first step is we develop by being with Jesus. And we develop by actually being with Jesus. And we see that that's what Jesus did with his disciples. It's interesting. I wanna, here's what I want to do. Just I want to scatter shoot a little bit around Luke chapter 9, 10, and 11 because this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. I want to just kind of shotgun it and let you see like, man, these are the kinds of things Jesus was doing that was developing his disciples. And I think it's what he's calling us to do as well. And so uh, in Mark, actually, I'm going to go back to Mark 13. When Jesus first called his disciples, it says this. He went up to a mountain and called those whom he desired and they came to him. Friends, I want you to know, first of all, that Jesus desires fellowship with you. God wants a relationship with you. You're not in the way. You're not someone that's like a cat nipping his heels that he's like, just leave me alone. He desires to be with you. And Jesus called his disciples and says, he called those whom he desired to be with and they went up to the mountain and they invested time with him. Luke Nine, as we kind of get back in the chapter we're looking at. Uh, I love how simple this is as we think about a case study of how it is that we learn by being with Jesus. 9.18, it says, Now it happened to be that he was praying alone and the disciples were with him. Um, I think Luke's saying that a little tongue-in-cheek. Like it just so happened that Jesus is sitting here praying by himself and the disciples are sitting right next to him just kind of watching. Like, 
at what he's doing. Hey, Jesus, what are you doing? And they begin to glean and listen and watch and observe and, and learn something from him. It's interesting, just a little bit later in Luke 9, 28, it says, he took them with him as he went away to pray. So he's going to go off by himself and spend some time with the Lord in prayer. And he brings the disciples and says, hey, I want you to come just go with me. I want you to sort of learn what this is like. Uh, so oftentimes, um, prayer is one of those things that, that you can receive information about, but it's hard to, but you learn it much more by doing it, by watching it, by living it, by being in the midst of it. And so Jesus is saying, come with me and watch me as I pray and be with me, listen to how I pray. And you begin to learn that. And then it's interesting, just a little bit later, you get to Luke chapter 11. And it says, now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Isn't that interesting the way that development works? But in, early in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is there, and it just says that, that Jesus is there, and, and the disciples are just happen to be there when he Disciples are there and Jesus is praying and they go, hey Jesus, would you teach us how to do that? And do you see how Jesus is developing and inviting them in? But he's kind of wooing them in. Friends, your proximity to Jesus creates opportunity for you to grow in Jesus. When you're with him, when you're around him, when you're invested in life with him, when you're in prayer with him, when you're diving into his word, it creates opportunity for you to grow in deeper ways and deeper understanding with him. We need to invest time and energy with, with, with the Lord in prayer and in his word. Secondly, we need to develop by listening to Jesus. Uh, it's interesting that right after the feeding of the 5,000, you get this passage where it says, about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he went up to the mountain to pray. And so he takes this inner circle, kind of his closest friends, the guys he was going to entrust with, and he takes them up the mountain to pray in a famous episode that we call the Transfiguration. And as they're up there, there's going to be an appearance of, uh, of, of Elisha and of Moses. And um, they're going to appear and they're going to glory. Jesus' glory is going to be there. And it's, it's fascinating when you look at this passage because in verse uh, 33 it says, And as the men were parting from them, when, they, when this vision of Moses and Elisha and the glory of God descended, went away, Peter said to Jesus, this is all the wisdom Peter had, Master, it's good that we are here. Let's build three tents and stay here. That's what he had. Like, that's what he leaned from it. Um, but it's interesting that as that happened, it says, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid and entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Friends, we, we develop by listening to Jesus. Jesus took his disciples up, and they were there, and they got to experience God descending upon this mountain. But what is it that God said? He just has one message. This is my son. Listen to him. You can trust him. You need to build your life on him. Build your life around what it is that he wants to do. And we need to heed his words. Friends, we need to listen to Jesus. He offers us life. John 10.10 10 says that he offers us, uh, that, the, that the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy, but he came to give us life and life to the full. We need to listen to Jesus and learn to live in his way. And we also develop through experience. And through our experience, often through our struggles. A uh, third way to develop is through our experience and often through our struggles. Uh, don't you love that the Bible shows us how, how, how weak the disciples really are? Like, I find this incredibly encouraging. Uh, Luke 9, the same chapter, uh, you get just a little bit later. 
And a guy comes along, he says, look, I begged your disciples to do that, to help me, but they couldn't do it. And isn't that great? Like, I, that, that encourages me at a deep level. I just got to tell you that as someone who's trying to do good in the world, there's times where it's like, I don't know what to do. And what's great to me is that Jesus' disciples, these guys who, they had performed these miracles. They'd been up at the mountain of transfiguration. They came down and this guy comes to them for help and they couldn't help him. And so this guy then goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, could you help him? They still, they still had learning to do. They still had things, they, areas they needed to grow. I love that in verse, uh, chapter nine, verse 44, uh, it, it goes on and says um, that the disciples, that Jesus taught them certain things. He said, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand this saying and it was, they were confused. Like, isn't that great news for you and me? That Jesus taught the disciples and said, he was like, just listen to these, let these words sink in. And they were so hard of hearing. They're like, I don't get it. Because sometimes I look at some things that the Lord asked me to do and I'm like, man, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, you get through this passage and Jesus is showing them all this stuff and it's so fascinating that you get to verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 30, 46. It says, an argument arose among them about which one of them is the greatest. Like that's what they're taking away. Like they were there, they couldn't feed the 5,000. They look at Jesus, he provided everything. He did all this miraculous stuff and they're sitting around like, hey, which one of us is the coolest? Like, which one of us is going to get the best seat? Like, I, if we get a promotion, like, am I going to be on the inside or are you going to be on the inside? You three got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe you're the cool inside guys and we're on the outside. They're completely missing the point, aren't they? That it's about Jesus. He's the one who's chosen. He's the one who's the beloved son. He's the one that God said, listen to. So, friends, sometimes we, we also develop through our experiences. And that sometimes is through our failures and through our struggles. Can I just encourage you that life is a life, uh, the, the, the discipleship is a lifelong journey? Like you're never going to get to a place where you know everything and you've done it all and you understand everything. But there's grace for you. Because God comes alongside you, the person of Christ and in the Spirit. And he's going to walk in you. He, he takes you where you are, but He doesn't leave you where you are. So, friends, as we enter this new year, the invitation for us is to deepen our development as followers of Christ. What does it look like for you to seek to grow up this year? How are you going to dive into this process of developing yourself or growing yourself or maturing yourself? I want to encourage you over and over again in the Bible, what we see is that we're called to do that through the Word of God. Um, we're, we're called to dive into the Word of God. Let me um, just share a couple of verses. It's interesting. It says, First uh, Peter says, Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk of the Word of God, for by it you may grow up. Uh, we're, we start off, young, but we're meant to mature. We're not meant to stay there forever. First uh, Corinthians 3, 2 says, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it yet. Um, he says in Hebrews 5, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's still a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern, distinguish good from evil. Do you see the, the process here? Over and over in scriptures, we see this thing of, you start off and like, I don't know a whole lot yet. And there's no fault in that. It's just like a baby comes out of the womb and doesn't know how to run. He has to begin to take baby steps and he begins to learn, he begins to stand and begins to gain balance and begins to grow. And, but, but you don't want a 30-year-old that can't do that, that you're intended to grow up. And so he starts off and says, you're like an infant, but you ought to grow up. And 1 Corinthians, it says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, 
but in your thinking become mature. Uh, he also says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Here's the heartbeat of this. We want to see you grow. We want to help you develop. We want to see you mature in Christ because that's where the good life is. That's the adventure he wants you to have. And you may have gotten into this going, I just want, to, I just want a, a couple balloons and to get a little better perspective on my life. And all of a sudden, what you're going to realize is that God's grace, when you begin to go up, is just going to take you to places you didn't even think you're going to go. And you may find yourself 100 miles from home and 16,000 miles up going, whoa, God wanted something a lot more in this than I even realized. He had more for me than what I even understood. Um, Hebrews 4 The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Friends, God will change you. He will meet you right where you are. The early church was known as people of the book because they saw this as the words of Christ on paper that they could dive into. And so they, they dove themselves in and they, these words were passed down from church to church. They were circulated. They leaned in and they grabbed them. And they devoted themselves to them because in them they believed there was life. Jesus one time said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it's those that bear witness to me that you refuse to come to me where you find real life. Friends, we have to trust the scriptures to point us to Christ. He's the bread of life. He's the one that we trust. And so... We come to him as those who are devoted to him, who are following him, who are seeking him, or saying it's all about Jesus. And then we dive into his word to allow that to help develop our understanding of who he is. And that's how we grow. Friends, do you understand that you're invited into this mission? That Jesus came and he took the 12 and he took the 72 and he took 3,000 and he multiplied this and it eventually showed up in Edmond, Oklahoma. And he birthed new life in you. And he's inviting you to be one of his disciples, he says to you, come follow me. But he also wants to develop you. He wants to see you move towards maturity because it's for your good, but it's also for the good of his mission. And we get to play a part on his team. Isn't that incredible? We've got, we've got a role to play in this city and in this world and this time for the next 10 years or however many years God gives us that we can make a difference for him. I love the way C.S. Lewis describes it. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. And we are bringing about a revolution in the world. It's what Jesus came to do, and we get to play a part. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for Christ. I thank you that in your wisdom, um, this plan of developing men and women to be his servants would continue to flourish even 2,000 years later. Father, I pray that you give us insight into what it looks like for us to live as followers of Jesus in 2024. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.